0: For those of you listeners who know my background a bit, you might remember the stories of my first few jobs after college. From being a mall cop to selling makeup door to door, I realized that I had skills that were being underutilized and that these minimum wage jobs couldn't support me or last forever. I spent years going through YouTube, reading books, listening to podcasts, and taking enough online courses to reinvent myself as a professional copywriter and digital marketer. Years later, thanks to my side hustles and drive, I've worked with national news outlets, million-dollar tech startups, nonprofits, and celebrities to build their brands and drive sales. None of this could have happened if I didn't develop in-demand skills. I had to do this alone, but you don't have to. You have Hustlers University 2.0. Hustlers University 2.0 is a community where you can learn real skills to earn money online today, starting with side hustles you can use to elevate your game. I'm not just an advocate for Hustlers University, I'm also a student. Every professor is verified to be making 10K to 500K monthly in their selected field. You get full resources, lesson plans, and active community of thousands of other Hustlers University students working on skills such as stock analysis, cryptocurrencies, e-commerce, copywriting, which was my favorite course, one I actually went ahead and took last month. And as a copywriter of seven years, I even took a ton out of that, including some of the resources I was able to take over to my day job. You also learn freelancing, financial planning, affiliate marketing, business management, and so much more. If you're tired of depending on a boss who hates you to deliver your paycheck or have learned since the lockdowns that controlling the source of your income is vital to your individual freedom, sign up for Hustlers University 2.0 today using the link in the show notes. I'll see you there. probably about two years since you came on, which sounds crazy, especially since we just passed episode 200 of On The Run. So time is now, you know, very much a social construct. I still feel like I'm in like, you know, the first year, but so much has changed. And one of those things was that um, you left the Washington Times about a year ago now, and you went immediately into becoming a full-time comic writer. And this is something that you had wanted to done for a while. But, you know, thinking about it and actually taking the plunge to do it is what separates the, the boys from the men. So let's just go ahead and rewind it and catch up a little bit. When you were like, I'm actually going to commit my full time and resources to putting out great books. When did it actually start feeling real?
1: So first, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. And yeah, time has flown by. It's been basically five years since I started meeting the people that ultimately would lead to the creation of Soul Finder and Iconic Comics. So that's it's just been like a blur. So that's weird. But really what happened was Soul Finder, the Indiegogo campaign, did very well. Uh, we only had, it was only open to domestic backers. Uh, there were some people that I allowed to kind of sneak in the cracks with just like contributions, but we didn't have international open to anyone. So it did really well. It made $33,000 officially with domestic. And then there was the overseas stuff. And then afterwards I saw the response to it and then orders continued to come in. And then I would randomly see people review it six months, seven months after the fact, and I was like, whoa, this has legs to it. Like a lot of campaigns, you see them, they launch, maybe the people eventually get the books and you never really hear about it again. But I kept seeing people reviewing it, or, and then they would ask me if, okay, well, can I still get this? Yes, you can. And I was like, I think, I think if I just go directly to Iconic Comics with this second book, if I could retain a certain number of readers, I could do this uh, perpetually. as long as I don't break my trust with the readers, I might be able to continue to grow this and break outside YouTube and break outside Twitter and you know find other networks out there that are interested in this sort of this particular series. And so with the Washington Times, it was one of those things where there was a lot of <laughs> other factors that were pushing me towards leaving. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I think now, is the time Uh, I want to, like you said, devote my full energies to this and see what happens. It's a,
0: it's amazing time to be alive right now for, for many, for many, like, you know, obvious reasons, but some of the good things is that a lot of stuff that, you know, would have probably taken a few more years to progress has now just become a staple for many people. And when we look at the e-commerce space, like tens of billions of dollars we're put into online sales during the pandemic and everything else, and that hasn't necessarily stopped. If anything, it's continued to grow the last couple of years. But what's really been fascinating is that I, I've been a fan of the crowdfunding model since before it really had a term. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, for my for my second book that was entirely crowdfunded. It was the first time I really did a massive project where I really didn't have to put much of my own capital into it. And now it seems that everybody has gone beyond just, you know, like the GoFundMe days of, you know, just give me like 10 bucks here and there and you'll feel good about yourself To I can actually build products and stuff that can go directly to the consumer and they get more out of it. I get what I need out of it. It's an amazing thing. Has that has that part changed going forward since now you're doing more with iconic comics? Like, are people still going to be able to jump in the future Indiegogo campaigns or is it going to be directly from the site from now on?
1: Yeah. So that's another thing is there are people that are really into just the crowdfunding stuff. And if you go away from that, it's, it's a bizarre situation where they almost are offended that you're leaving crowdfunding Uh, where in my mind, I'm like, well, if you get successful enough, you want to, not ask other people for money first. I don't have I'm not opposed to it per se, but you know, depending on what your goals are for the project. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, in the future, I have, n- I have not, I'm not opposed to Indiegogo or Kickstarter or anything like that. There's a summer crossover event with my friend Timothy Lim and Mark Pellegrini. They have their own series, Common America Black Hops. And so that's going to be crowdfunding. That'll be on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And I'm part that, that of that
0: series is so funny. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just picked up common America volume one a few weeks ago, and I've already ordered uh, black ops and a few others. And they are just so funny.
1: Yeah. Well, it was definitely a blessing to be able to meet Tim and have things work out where he was interested in in doing the Soul Finder series. But yeah, going back to the crowdfunding thing, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, In fact, next year, we have a a book that's going to come out, which will be the Vietnam origins of one of my characters, uh, Father Reginald Crane. And I plan on most likely going to Indiegogo or Kickstarter or both for that particular book, because it's the main character in my series is a priest named Father Patrick Redder. And this is like, you know, he's also a, a, a big character, but it's his own sort of world. So I'm like, okay, for launching off in his own world, I'll, I'll do that one crowdfund and we'll see how that goes. But I don't necessarily need to do it, but it hardcovers, anytime you get into hardcover books and you want to do things like that, it gets really pricey. And the risk goes up, obviously, the more money that you are sinking into these projects. So if I could find some happy balance between uh, doing the crowdfunds and just funding them myself, I think that'll work out well in the long run. As a creator, even
0: with your your partnership with Iconic Comics, like you still own the rights to all your characters and stuff, right? So when you want to go off and do a crowdfunding campaign and stuff like this, that's not going to impact anything else you're doing.
1: Correct. So yeah, I I retain all the rights to it. They're just doing the fulfillment. Um, Everybody's under the iconic comics roof, but they don't own the properties. So if for whatever reason I decided tomorrow not to do volume three through them, um, I can do that. Do I want to? No. But if I did, they would be like, okay, that's cool. Like, you know, doors open if you want to come back, uh, that sort of thing. So it's, it's really just, we have a good Working relationship and balancing that sort of like friends and business at the same time. I know that's a, a minefield for a lot of people, but I think we've done a pretty good job doing that over the years. Yeah. I mean, you guys are really kind of fulfilling that
0: old school image comics dream, which is what if we just gave writers and artists kind of like the platform to kind of get their stuff out to readers? And they could still be in charge of how they want to kind of do their own studios and how they want to manage their own books or anything. And, and I think right now we're we're in bit of a we're in bit of a renaissance because you know post lockdowns and everything else, um, the distribution channels for like the big two, for example, Marvel and DC, like they're still probably months and months behind from where they wanted to be. And with a lot of local comic shops here in the Milwaukee area, like, you know, ever since they uh, ever since like DC cut off from Diamond and went with a couple different uh, printers, like they don't know if they're ever getting the books that they order on time. And that impacts their customer relationship and everything else. So, I mean, it's it's been an amazing time for a lot of indie books to come up. I mean, I didn't know who Chip Zdarsky was, and now he's a now he's a bigger writer and everything. But he started off writing indie titles over at you know Image, Dark Horse, other stuff, and you have a lot of indie books that you know people are really jumping towards because one with, with all the with all the weirdness that's been going on between marvel and dc that was already pushing away readers for years but now it's gotten to the point where it's like you know it's almost like a uh, craft beer and stuff like that it's like people want to find something really unique something really cool they want to say that they're supporting small publishers and writers and, and it seems like kind of a renaissance period. Have, have you kind of experienced that from, you know, new readers and people who were kind of disenfranchised who were like, listen, I, I want something fresh. I want something genuinely good. And, you know, th- this seems like a good deal.
1: Yeah, I think the sort of microbrewery sort of <laughs> uh, beer analogy or whatever you want to call it is actually a pretty good one. There's There are people out there that love iconic comics. They collect everything. They share you know all their books online and social media and it's really this sort of grassroots effort because we have no mainstream support whatsoever you're not going to see the mainstream comic book websites they they don't they don't pay attention to iconic comics at all Um, and obviously the the Marvel DC, they're not knocking on our doors or whatever, and so all of the growth has been this organic thing from the ground up of people that were disillusioned by whatever the heck's going on in comics these days, and they were looking for something different, people that wanted solid storytelling, And solid art, and they wanted it at a a fair price. Um, And so they're finding it at Iconic Comics and obviously various crowdfunding campaigns where the creators are reliable and consistent and put out good work.
0: Now, since you're doing this full time now, has your relationship with the book kind of changed? It's kind of like, you know, when, when some people go from having something that was just a passion project, just a hobby to now it's, you know, something that's kind of like, you know, keeping them afloat, paying the bills, the relationship kind of changes. Has that happened since you transitioned?
1: Uh, Not so much. It's one of those things where my biggest problem is wrestling with myself in doing research on different stories that I want to tell, because you could read books until the cows come home. They're like over and over and over and over. There's So when do you cut off the research that you're doing? So for the book I'm doing next year, I've been researching Vietnam. I've been researching the tunnel rats and all of that. At some point in time, you have to cut it off and just write the script and do that. So I, I've been struggling with that because I like to read <laughs> and I could just read all day. I could read for eight hours a day and I'd be happy. So I can't do that. I got to write the scripts. And then the other thing is, Uh, I've been cautiously wading into the waters where you don't want to do, okay, it's like I've done one book a year and I've been happy with that. I'm confident that I could put this out into the world and put my name behind it. But I don't want to, the logistics involved in getting books together and getting them published and getting nice hardcovers out to people and all of that, It's very, there's a lot of moving parts. And I'm scared that if I did started writing two in three books a year, I could write the scripts. But then the fulfillment process and the distribution, I don't want to drop the ball on that. So I've been a little nervous. In that reason. So so maybe maybe you can explain something to me because and for people that aren't
0: familiar with your work, you're not putting out like a twenty-three page individual comic book once a year. You're putting together a full, a full-length graphic novel between like, was it like 40 to 60 pages?
1: Right. So the, the first two books were 56 page stories that eight pages of, of bonus art. This third book is 72 pages Oh wow! and it has uh 12, and then it has a 12 page short story that I was simultaneously working on called war cry. It takes place at Arlington cemetery. Uh, and then there's a couple other pages for end sheets and the books and all of that. So essentially we'll just say 90 pages um, are going into this current project right now. And um Yeah. Anytime you're doing more than just a single issue floppy comic book, um, the the bigger it gets, then there's all sorts of costs involved. And then you have to juggle getting the inking done and the lettering done and the, the, the color work. All of that, you're adding more people to the list every time. If you want to do gilded pages and they don't have the correct – they got or certain inks, if you do glow in the dark, they got to order the specialty glow in the dark ink and all of this. And they got to do it two months ahead or there's a cardboard shortage. And you might not be able to do the hardcovers unless you get your proofs in by this date. If you don't, you're going to be waiting four months. Uh, So, uh, like I said, you're juggling all of these things. You're like the guy in the variety show with the plates, trying to keep them all spinning simultaneously. And if I start doing two and three books a year, I think all my plates are going to crash to the ground if I don't, you know, I need to practice, (laughs) I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Is the goal to eventually go to making this or something else a monthly book?
1: Not for me, no. I don't think I could ever do a monthly book. Um, Timothy Lim and Mark Pellegrini, they have their webtoons, and I think those come out every Wednesday, uh, the, the Common America stuff. But Tim, so as a writer, I'm at a disadvantage because I need to go out and I need to find artists who could bring the script to life. Uh, whereas Tim, he, he could do all of his color work. He, does, you know, he is the artist, so if he wants to stay up from midnight until eight in the morning drawing, he can do that and he could get it out at a much faster clip. Whereas I'm out there finding artists like Jeff Spokes or Alejandro Mirabal or bugging my buddy Eric Canetti to do a cover for me and saying like, Hey man, I know you're busy. Can you squeeze this in? And uh, you've been kind enough to do that.
0: Well, what I do like about the way that, You and and the other folks at Iconic Comics do it is like, you know, when I when I picked up when I picked up Soul Finder the first time for the first volume, like it was a complete story. It's right there. And there's something about getting a complete story. I think this is why like Marvel, for example, they've really drifted more towards doing a lot more original graphic novel content. And a few writers are are going on their own to kind of do that. I know that Chuck Dixon has also kind of done that in the past. since He stopped doing a lot of stuff with the DC after a Bane conquest about four or five years ago. But like there, I think there's something better about getting a concise story because what you also see is that the quality of everything is also just, different. It's at a different level. Like they're, are monthly titles and I haven't, I haven't collected monthly titles in over four or five months. Now I I had a couple that I was grabbing, but it was more because I needed to like fix my comic book craving for a little bit. And now Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's like one issue is really, really good. And then the other one is kind of sloppy. And you can kind of tell that, especially since, you know, writers and artists were told to like put down their pencils for like seven months, there's like this weird catch up period, but I can't give them that much leniency because the quality in a lot of Books over the last couple of years, like it was waning even before that because editors were just trying to bring in people that weren't necessarily qualified, or you know, they might have a Twitter blue check mark, but they're not necessarily great artists or they're not necessarily great writers. So they're just hoping that they can get their stuff in on time. Whereas when I go ahead and pick up a complete volume of any of the titles from Iconic Comics, you know the standard of the writing is going to be good and it's going to be consistent throughout the story. You know, a lot more em- uh, emphasis has been placed on the quality of the artwork. It's like you guys have a completely different level, not only compared to other indie publishers, but also just in terms of comics in general.
1: Yeah. The, the sort of long-term goal is to be able to put out books where if you held up an iconic comics book next to a Marvel book, the iconic book would either compete with the best of the Marvel books or even exceed the overall quality and price point. And so uh, that was something early on I talked with Timothy Lim about. And we were like, how do we, how do we, the distribution problem, getting that, that's really expensive. Okay, now how do we fix? How do we figure out this international? That's one we're still working on. The international problem because it's so expensive to ship overseas. And how do you keep the quality up and get those to people? And, and all of that. So it's um, like I said, time has flown by, it's been five years, but I think in the short amount of time that iconic comics has existed, it's shown that it's punching above its weight class. And if we keep doing what we're doing, uh, I, I just think a lot of cool things are are just over the horizon. There's um, there's something that
0: at least for me as a as, as a buyer, I've noticed about my own trends. It's like over the last uh, four or five years now, I tend to follow specific writers. Like I wasn't necessarily following, you know, like Donny Cates to Thor because I really loved Thor. It's because I like the quality of his writing and stuff like that. And uh, even some people who I, I almost hesitate to bring up now because they've, they've really kind of butchered the books that they're currently doing. Like I'm a, I consider myself a pretty big Tom Taylor fan, but uh, ever since I picked up Superman, son of Kal-El issue one, I've just been like, what have you done? (laughs) Like, what have you done? So, so now I've, you know, I, I I still kind of, I still kind of do that. I still kind of follow a few writers or a few artists, but I'm not necessarily married to the idea of supporting a specific book or a specific uh, publisher at this point. And I I was kind of like that way with you because your Soul Finder series was really the only one I was buying from Iconic Comics. And then, you know, about a month ago, I went ahead and bought *Common America*, um, *Stars and Strife* Volume One, which is fantastic. And now I found myself with like this you know, this credit card bill. It's like, wow, I, I think I kind of went on a, a binge streak buying a whole bunch more. And it's like, you know, it's it's really great when you see a stable of writers and artists that are lifting up each other's quality, that are helping cross promote each other's books, and you're seeing like a really good stable team of professionals that are saying, whether you like this style of story or this style of story, we all have different flavors, but we still hold ourselves to the same level of quality. And that's not something I've felt from Marvel for at least a decade, DC, probably like the past five, six
1: years. So last year we were at Bell County Comic Con in Texas. There was over 32,000 people there. And we didn't just have a booth. We had essentially a, a, a square. And each side of the square had... You know, it was – I was there, and then next to me was Alejandro Mirabal. He had the Long Harbor book. And then next to him was Timothy Lim and Mark Pellegrini. They had their stuff. Then next to them was uh, Matt Weldon and Bill Williams. They had their Punchline book. And then next to them was George Alexopoulos. It was like George and I were sort of like together or whatever. But it was this thing where you're talking about raising other people up. Alejandro Mirabal would have someone come to him and they'd be like, wow, I really like this. This is like really cool. And he's like, well, if you like this, then you'll probably like Doug's Black Tide book. So you might want to check that out. And then vice versa, they would come to me and they're like, oh, this is pretty cool, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you like this art, then you then go to the other side of the square because Timothy Lim did the Common America books and he's over there. And so our entire table did really well in terms of sales because we were constantly sending customers over to somebody else. And we were able to almost like break the ice for the next guy by saying like, Hey, no, if you like what I'm doing, you're going to like this guy. And uh, it just sort of had this domino effect, uh, this positive domino effect. And that carries over, I think, to the online social media stuff with everybody sort of sharing each other's work and uh vouching for each other in terms of the overall quality of the books but it all hinges on the book actually being good you know you don't want them to buy the book and they're like hey he was he was giving me a line there it's like no i really do believe that these books and that the people that are under the iconic roof are putting out quality material and speaking of the the
0: internet culture around it which is primarily on twitter um, you know, this uh, you know, we, we've already talked about how the industry is has been changing and continues to go through changes. Uh w- one of the things that really bugs me is when I go to my local comic shops here, and, and there are a few I just stopped going to because of to, to be quite honest, like the, the mask mandates here in Milwaukee have been done for like a year now. And they're still forcing people to do that. That's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. So it's like, I'm not as much as I want to support a small business. There are other small comic shops around here. I can give my money to, I don't have to give them to you, but it's like, you know uh, it's well in, in that, in that store's case, it's like they're shooting themselves in the foot because they don't get their stuff in on time. They don't put it out on the shelves on time. They're sloppy with uh, how they manage their pull boxes and everything. But like, um, you know, th- this seems like a perfect opportunity for for indie publishers and indie titles to really kind of fill that void. But at the same time, you know, we we had like a, a massacre in terms of the number of comic shops that permanently closed down. I think they were there around like four or 5,000 in the United States. And since 2020 around, 1700 or so have permanently closed down. So it seems like a great opportunity to to get on shelves. Are, are you guys distributing to local comic shops? Is it just like a store by store thing? Is it a regional thing? Is, is that even a priority? Or do you just still place an emphasis on direct to consumer?
1: So Timothy Lim and Mark Pellegrini have worked with Antarctic Press for a while, and I actually think uh, the Punchline books with Matt Weldon and Bill Williams I'm not 100% sure on that. I think uh, they've worked with Antarctic Press, whereas a lot of times these books, they'll come out, and then there's essentially – I don't know all of their business dealings, but sometime after the fact, those books will work their way into comic shops under um, Antarctic Press – and so they have done that uh, I've been approached to do that sort of thing uh, by individuals but for right now it, it's like it's a nice feather in your cap to be like oh I got in a comic book shop or 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 whatnot." but right now um, I'm just happy kind of doing it the way that that I'm doing and it's just an extra thing that I would have to get involved in and do the paperwork and there's like legal things involved and it's just like it's really not worth it to me to get into like a few dozen comic book stores for the amount of effort that I have to put into it. At least for right now, I want to just concentrate on getting the next book out. (laughs) So, but I'm open to it. Um, But like you said, a lot of comic book shops do weird things and uh, they shoot themselves in the foot. And these days, actually most of the comic book shops that uh, I go to have turned more into Funko Pop t-shirt shops that also happen to sell batman and (laughs) spider-man
0: i have i have such a weird relationship with that because at the same time it's like you look around the shop and you're like i know who's here for comic books and who's not but at the same time it's like a majority of stores are starting to sell that uh the amazing comic shop in fairfax virginia was like my stomping ground. I used to go to that store so much over the last decade that I almost thought about just having my mail sent there. But I I remember uh, one summer coming back from some army training, I walked in and they did like a complete revamp of the store layout. And it was all Funko Pops. It was all statues, T-shirts, collectible junk and stuff like that. With some people like, I don't want to, you know, diminish their, their hobbies, but like all the comics were pushed to the sidewall. So right. then it was like, you know, you're, you're still a comic shop. And like, I, I get it, but you know, it's also like when, when the lockdowns and everything happened, it's like those people weren't coming to your shop to buy Funko pops. The people that were keeping you alive were comic book readers. And I almost like, I, I think, I think it's going to be a sad day because people have been talking about this way prior to, to that and everything. They were like, when are comic book shops going to be extinct or will they just evolve into being more of like, you know, a pop culture collectible store that also sells comic books. I I'm kind of, I'm kind of in this weird situation because as much as I love the nostalgia of going to a comic book store, it's almost like, you know, that a, a certain part of the culture has changed to a point where it's like, it's no longer relevant to my fan experience of getting to go there and do it, especially with how, The publishers have treated um, a lot of comic book shops, they've treated them and the people that go there, they've treated them like they're toxic. They're bad for fandom because they want to replace them with people who just want the Funko Pops of their characters and don't know shit beyond that. And then it's like, you know, it's it's just it just doesn't it doesn't feel the same like as much as i still enjoy going there even if it's just a window shop which itself is a lie because i've never walked into a comic book shop without walking out with something right it's um it just it feels different and if they went away tomorrow i part you know i would be sad but at the same time it's like i feel like they already went away a while ago
1: yeah i think on some level it would be like vinyl records where at some point in time they were not popular, you know, CDs and all of this. And then a lot of places st- stopped making vinyl records. But then you had someone like a third man records and a Jack White, who I'm like a huge fan of. I admit that. Like I like what he's doing in Detroit with like, he, he started building all the infrastructure to, to be able to sell vinyl and have like cool artists put out vinyl. Now there's this sort of like resurgence in vinyl. And I think comic books could sort of be the same way. And on some bizarre l- level, I, I, In terms of iconic comics, I would like iconic comics to almost be like the third man records of comics or something along those lines. I haven't really unpacked it all, but I've been really looking into third man records lately and thinking about them and thinking about what they do and how they do it and how they literally have their own factory printing vinyl. And so if 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 iconic comics at some point in time could get be able to just literally print their own books and print their own hard covers. Um, I think that would be pretty cool. That might be like a five year, <laughs> five there's year a, plan. I mean, there's still a strength
0: to owning a brick and mortar location because I mean, let, let's, you know, let's, let's play in the realm of theory here. You guys start doing all your own in-house printing and everything, and you own like one physical location. It's not just a place where you sell your stuff. It's where you host, you know, panels and author signings and artist signings and screenings. And you could do so much of that, grow the community, create more engagement. I, uh, in, in 2020, I was very serious. I worked with a, w- with a partner at the time who did venture capital startups for small businesses. I, I wanted to start a comic book copy, coffee shop in Manassas, Virginia, And I was very serious. I was already putting out the research. I was already looking at locations, seeing what the difference between, you know, whether I want to buy a location or rent a location or what, what have you like, I, I was very serious, but you know, the, the idea was it's like my, my passion is comics, but I wanted to bring coffee into it because what I realized was that comic book shops don't really make a lot of profit off the comics. Right. Whereas a coffee shop, you know, you can bring in people, who want one or the other. And if you're selling coffee for, you know, even a slight markup, if I just bought wholesale large, you know, back issue collections of comic books, and I put them in the back, and I put them all up for like, a $3 markup or something, the coffee can keep the bills paid, but the, the comics could go ahead And actually like bring in the profit because you get a mom who comes in and her kids want to buy books. So she's drinking coffee, looking at her phone and her kids coming over the stack of comics. It's like, bam, I've just made that kid a convert for life. I'm fixing, I'm fixing a childhood illiteracy one day at a time. But it's like, you know, as I started thinking about that and when when the pandemic and everything happened, it's like, you know, I I can't do that now. But it's almost like if I was thinking about that, I hope that maybe some comic shops have started to realize and maybe even some of the publishers. It's like this has to evolve if it wants to stay relevant. And even if the comics aren't the draw, the comics can still be something that kind of ties everything together in one way, shape or form.
1: Right. No, I think that's a really good idea. I was telling someone on Twitter recently that years ago, I would go to the comic shop and then I would get my comics and then I would go to Panera Bread and I would find my little corner of Panera, get my food, open my comics and spend like the next hour reading comics. And then, you know, I would alternate between that and checking Twitter or something like that. That, that was me and Dunkin' Donuts. I go to the amazing comic shop after
0: school and I go Dunkin' Donuts and get my coffee and read my books there.
1: Yeah, so I think it's a really good idea. And I, I honestly, I don't know why more comic shops don't do something Along those lines, there's a a YouTuber, Gary from Nerdrotic, and I was like messing with him recently. I was just like, hey, when are you going to have the the diner slash sort of comic shop or something along those lines? Um, And I just think that's a good mix of people that want to just chill out and have their coffee or have their tea or hot chocolate and lay back and just read some comics for a little while. I did. um, I I did some. Competitive
0: analysis. I have to throw out the buzzwords so people know I was actually serious about it. I did some competitive analysis, and uh, what what I found is that like it's not it's not something that hadn't been done before. There was one in Baltimore, and there's one that is uh, is still around in Philadelphia, and I think there's one in San Francisco or San Diego. But there's very few of them, and you know these are the ones that have been around for like more than five years, so they're functional. But the problem is is that you had a lot of these store owners that were starting to serve coffee, but the coffee was more of a gimmick. Like they were basically just using a Keurig and the coffee wasn't that good. (laughs) And they were basically trying to do that because they were like, come in and get my comics. And then you have some stores where it's like, it's it's a coffee shop. It looks like a Starbucks and they sell comics, except it's like a rack with some manga on it. Right. And it's like, you know, I kind of understand why one does the other, but it's like, you know, I I had to kind of understand that. It's like, is the intention, at least for me, was the intention to create a comic book store that sells coffee, knowing that the comics will not bring people in, really, and the comics will not make a profit, or my coffee shop that sells comic books. And when I was doing it, I was like, you know, I have to focus on what keeps us sustaining. It's a coffee shop that sells comic books. Right. So it's like if I had done that and maybe one day I'll still go through with it, if I have enough capital and, you know, depending on how the economy keeps going, maybe, maybe not. But it's like the, the stores that were like, let's go ahead and double down on the coffee. We could do that. But then I'm thinking it's like, well, why stop at coffee? Why not have like, you know, a villain's cafe, you know, like a Moss Eisley cantina type thing, like the Scum and Villainy Cantina in Los Angeles. Like, why not go ahead and have a bar? that sells comic books because alcohol brings in more profit than coffee,
1: Right. stuff like that. It's
0: <laughs> like, you know, it's almost like you have to find, you have to find something to fuel the passion.
1: Yeah. There are so few entrepreneurs that, uh, want to go out and they have that love for both comics and the culinary side of it, I guess, and then putting them together.
0: It's a weird combination, but
1: somehow it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, it makes sense. And then you're like, well, even if that entrepreneur exists, not only do they have to be able to raise the capital and have the organizational skills and the management skills. So it's like, then it's the execution of that. And I just think, Yeah, there are very few people in a, even in a population of what is it like 300 million Americans or whatever, like that would be able to pull it off. Um, But I do think it's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Uh, Just somebody, you know, it always comes down to just time or money. It's like, you know, there was, there was a moment where it was like, I had the time. And then after that, it was like, well, now I have more time and now I have money. And now it's like, well, now I've just got no time. And it's like, you know, uh, I, I just, I, I just, I, I wish somebody would take the plunge. And I hate saying that because it sounds like a cop-out. It's always like, you know, you always get like the Grant Cardone's of the world. Well, why don't you do it? And it's like, you know, I'm not making excuses. It, it's just a matter of like, I, I'm I'm surprised that a non-comic shop owner, especially right now, hasn't gotten to the point where it's like, this is a do or die situation. Right. Because, you know, like last year, 2021, they saw record sales of, of print comics, not even counting digital. Digital has been kind of you know flat for a while in terms of the number of people that are buying. They're not getting on new discoveries through digital like they thought they would. They, they sold more comics in 2021 than they sold in 2018, according to a Comic Book Resources. So it's like you know that you have a good opportunity where you're starting to resuscitate yourself. There are five comic shops in and around me here in the Milwaukee area. If just one of them opened a coffee shop component or a diner or a bar, that would be my new spot just by default
1: exactly yeah no it's if they if you could find the right person who could like you said they do the coffee but the coffee is actually good or if it's a little diner and they have one or two menu items that are just really good like i said you know i would go to panera or whatever and i'd get my weekly uh panini that i loved it's like you, you have something that will draw people in they're gonna come come to it it's the what is it that you build it they will come sort of thing
0: Field of dreams, field of dreams. Well, Douglas, it's been uh, great having you on so far. Let's just kind of wrap up with this. As you kind of look out to the next couple of years, what are just your pie in the sky dreams? Like you've got to have some. Are you thinking maybe make this into into a digital, you know, series like live action or something or you think of animation are you thinking of you know radio drama versions of the books like you know is is the goal just to keep going and because that's just what you want to do i mean where's where's your mind taking you
1: yeah the uh tim was telling me the other day i don't think he would mind me saying this that he was talking to the owner of iconic and the owner was saying the thing i like about you guys is if you just came into a million dollars tomorrow, you would still do soul finder. Like literally nothing would change. It's not like you'd be like, well, see you later. Uh, You'd be like, no, I want to find a way to put that million dollars into an animated soul finder or or something along those lines. So in terms of like the long-term stuff there, there are some things that we are working on that I I can't really talk about, but we uh, even this fall, there's something that might, might come out this fall that I think is going to be pretty cool for a lot of people, but I, I think animation would be something that I would really like to get into. And then there are other properties that I have. Uh, there's two other um, properties that I would like to develop. But right now, it's uh, I'm focused on getting the the fourth Soul Finder script written, and then starting that. And then maybe I'll start the the second IP. Um in a couple months here, but we got a show down and we have that's the other thing is we started doing shows. So I'm going down to Texas multiple times this year. I think I might be going to North Carolina, might be going to Kansas City, and then um going back to Mo- Mobile, Alabama, I believe, this December. So between all the travel and the shows and and just doing the Soul Finder stuff, it it's it's like, where do you make that time? But I'm trying my best.
0: Yeah, and you're a you're a one-man army for sure. Uh, Dude, if uh, people want to go ahead and follow you on Twitter, pick up your books and everything else, how could they do so?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Douglas Ernst on all of them is basically my handle. If you, you search me, you could find me. If people wanted to buy books directly, they could just go to Douglas Ernst at DouglasErnst.blog. And then obviously, Iconocomics.com has uh, both volumes of Soulfinder Finder out. It will soon have the third volume, and it will also have uh, the short story in the near future called Soul Finder War Cry.
0: Dude, the, the, the artwork that you were sending me on Twitter that – no one else has been able to see so far like my god you have you have upped your game like the artists that you teamed up with and everything like this book looks freaking crazy
1: I, I was hoping to just pack this next book because this is the book that's the first book since I left the newspaper. So it's like, okay, now he had time on his hands. <laughs> what did he do with this time? So it's like, all right, I'm going to give you Dave Dorman, Matt Weldon, uh, Jeff Spokes, Alejandro Mirabal, Eric Canetti. And I'm just going to bash all of you know this cool artwork into one hardcover book. And uh, then hopefully it's on me in the writing. It's, uh, hopefully I did my job with the, the storytelling part. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much
0: for coming on. Always a blast. Hey, thanks for having me. Folks, if you want to go ahead and hear more conversations like this, do me a favor. Go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and review across Al Gore's amazing internet, wherever you listen to podcasts. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. We can go ahead and keep you going. As always, go ahead and find all the shows and more over at Libertarians.com, and we'll be back later in the week. Be safe, be good. Good night.